FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. ACNEM is a non-profit medical college offering postgraduate training and education for doctors and other graduate healthcare professionals. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today from sunny, is it sunny, Melbourne, is Professor Felice Jacker, who's produced exemplary research into not only the effects of diet and lifestyle on mental health, but how to best intervene in a practical population-based way to get results. She is an NHMRC, that's the National Health and Medical Research Council Career Development Fellow at Deakin University. She's president of the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research, that's the ISNPR, who are about to have their inaugural conference, I understand, in July this year. Is that right, Felice? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. And Felice is also the Australian Alliance for the Prevention of Mental Disorders, that's the APMD. Felice leads the New Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. She's also involved with the famed Black Dog Institute, which I, I gave a yay when I found that out, I've got to say. Felice has also pioneered and led a highly innovative program of research that examines how individuals' diets and other lifestyle behaviours interact with the risk for mental health problems. And this research is being carried out with the ultimate goal of developing new evidence-based prevention and treatment strategies for mental health disorders. If you're interested in dietary and lifestyle approaches to mental health, you quite simply must keep abreast of the work of Felice Jacker. I will say, Professor Felice Jacker. Welcome, Felice. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you, Andrew. Now, Felice, I've got to say, you you probably don't know me much from Barra Soap. I, I um, heard you spoke, oh gosh, it'll be a decade now down in Melbourne, a decade ago. Can I first ask you about your career, um, what, what, where did you start? And, and you've now attained professorship as of January this year, correct? That's correct, yes. <laughs> Can you lead us through your academic career? Well, it, it is quite circuitous and certainly not a traditional conventional um, pathway, but my first degree was in fine art during the 1980s. Right. Uh, so I studied fine art and at RMIT and I was a painter, in, you know, in quotation marks, an artist. Um, but when I had my first child in my um, early late 20s and early 30s, I went back to university to study psychology and I just did that part-time while I was bringing up young children. And I realised while I was doing this that I probably wasn't that interested in being a psychologist as in being a counsellor, but I was very interested in the brain. I was also very interested in the statistics hmm. that go with a psychology course, which I know makes me a big nerd. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so I, I sort of followed my interest and my nose and um, volunteered to do some interning work at um, a newly established psychiatric research unit down in Geelong, which at that time was part of the University of Melbourne with Professor Michael Burke, who'd just uh -huh. come from, to Australia and established this research unit. And he had no funding because he'd just arrived in the country. I was an undergrad. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just knew that I was really keen to do uh, research. And he said, well, we have these data on depression from a large population-based study. Would you be interested in collating them and analysing them? And I said, oh, yes, please. <laughs> So it sort of went from there and while I was finishing my undergrad, I was working, um, doing research uh, and using data from this large population-based study and that really stood me in good stead to then um, do my honours degree with this unit in epidemiology which focuses on statistics and population-based data and also then to get a um, scholarship from Australian Rotary Health to do my PhD in the unit. 
And what had really struck me when I started doing research work in the unit was how little data there was on Mm. on diet and nutrition in Mm. relation to mental health. And of course, this was really in contrast to what exists in the rest of medicine, where we've really known for quite a long time that diet and nutrition are very important for chronic uh, medical conditions. Mm. Mm. And at the same time, there were these emerging studies coming out of the US in animals showing that manipulating diet could have an impact on the brain and centers of the brain that we knew were relevant to mental health, such as the hippocampus. Um, We also were starting to understand that the immune system played a really important role in depression risk and that, of course, the immune system is affected by diet. There was new evidence around epigenetics and how nutrition might influence gene expression. Um, you know, there was a whole lot of leads that made me think, gee, there's something in this that really should be examined. And my background, I'd always been very interested in nutrition. My father was a naturopath. Right. Gotcha. Um, I was going to ask that. So, yeah, yeah. Elf Jacker, he helped establish the Southern School of Natural Therapies in um, Victoria way back in the 60s. Right. Um, so I'd grown up in a family where the idea that nutrition was fundamental to health was just a given. You know, it was something, and I've always eaten well. I've always been very, uh, not overly conscious, but conscious of mm. healthy eating and mm. its importance. So having worked on the, this large population-based study, I realized that there were very good data available on people's nutrition, and, you know, their habitual dietary intakes. And then, of course, we were planning as part of my PhD to do detailed psychiatric assessments on this large population-based sample of women. And my proposal for the PhD was to put those two things together and see if there was a relationship between what people were eating and whether or not they had these clinical uh, depressive or anxiety disorders, which are called the common mental disorders. So I commenced doing that. I think quite a few people thought I was a bit bonkers. I had to scramble around and take methodologies from the wider nutrition field and from other aspects of medicine to be able to apply them to mental health. Um, And, you know, that took uh, uh, four years and then my PhD ended up being published on the front cover of the American Journal of Psychiatry, which was a big coup. And I think it was was just that it was so novel. I mean, people were just not thinking along these lines. You know, that Cartesian dichotomy of mind and body has really um, influenced psychiatry and psychology. And we were really saying, well, mind and body are linked. You know, we're talking about a whole human and the brain and the immune system. They're all linked. And nutrition is fundamental to all of the bodily processes and the brain. So we should be thinking about uh, diet in relation to mental health as well as physical health. Mm -hmm. So this is what really stunned me is agriculture is based on the nutrition, the health of the animal being... Mm -hmm. Optimum for production, for the world, for our benefit, basically. Um, you know, and you can take this to all forms. With forgive me, I said animal, animal or plant. So it's basically as getting as much out of that animal or plant so that we can gain its benefit. But there's this such, it's a disconnect really um, about. Oh yes, but can't we optimize our own nutrition rather than making them the whole source of that? It was, it was, well, it's I think a, that there's this irony when you consider that, and I've had several people who do veterinary research speak to me yeah. at conferences, and they say well, it's well known in in you know farming and agriculture that to influence the behaviour of your animals, you know pigs, um, cattle, what have you, yep. you only need to make minute changes to the the composition of their diet to have quite a big impact on their behaviour. Yes, and this is very well established. Why we have this blindness where we think that we can just shove anything in our mouths and it's not going to have an impact on our functioning day to day and all of these incredibly complex and um, delicate processes is kind of beyond me because clearly that's not the case. And yet the changes to the food system have been so comprehensive and I guess they've snuck up on us over um, nearly half a century so that what is normal now was certainly not normal half a century ago, but it feels normal because mm. it's just it's so, so common. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so leading on from there, I've got to imagine that 
in the beginning of your career, you would have found it rather a hard slog to get decent funding. Is the government realising that they need to invest in diet, that it's actually going to lead to healthcare savings in the future? So for instance, we know that um, obese people are at higher risk of depression. We know or we have a projection of obesity and diabetes to cost us, or I think it's $45 billion by 2025 in total healthcare costs. That's going to flow over into mental healthcare costs, which are already skyrocketing. And we've, we've got a massive problem that we're not addressing. It's only going to get even more massive. Are they twigging? Are they getting that they need to intervene now to stop that later? Or is it the three-year um, um, voting, you know, I want to stay in power sort of cycle? Pretty much. It's, <laughs> Damn. You know, one of the first things I would say is that the obesity issue is something that I think we need to somehow um, not make forefront and centre because all of the work that we've done and much of the animal research as well is suggesting that the influence of nutrition on mental and brain health exists quite independently of obesity. Uh-huh. Not all people with an unhealthy diet will be obese and not all people with a healthy diet will be in the healthy BMI range. Right. That link between diet quality and obesity is not as strong as one might think. So because the public discourse has been so firmly rooted on obesity, I think that it's actually done some damage simply because once people are overweight or obese, it is very, very difficult to reverse that. You've basically upset all sorts of very delicately balanced systems in the body. And once they're out of whack, it's very difficult to get them back again. And your body will do all sorts of tricky things to make sure that that weight stays on you. So by having a focus purely on obesity, what you've got then is a whole population going, well, I've tried to lose weight and I can't, so I've just, I'm not going to do anything different. Yeah, yeah. You know, And so they're not getting the message that it's the quality of people's diets that matters, not simply whether or not they're obese. So we know from the latest burden, global burden of disease studies that poor diet is the leading cause of early death around the world. And that's not just through obesity. That's through not enough vegetables, fruits, legumes, nuts, seeds, as well as too much of the other stuff that we know is not good for us. And similarly, in the nutrition mental health area, we know that these two things are separate as well, that not getting enough of the good stuff is problematic no matter how much junk food you do or don't eat. And having too much unhealthy foods is problematic, even if you're also eating a lot of the good stuff. So they seem to be not, obviously they're overlapping, but they are to some extent independent. So when we just focus on obesity, we're really just focusing on what we would suggest is a marker for some people of poor diet, but it doesn't always follow that it is. So am I right in picking up there that, that you include poor diet as being too much of even good food? No, 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 we wouldn't say that, no. Uh, Although, you know, eating, overeating Mm. does seem to be problematic to health and it certainly will lead to obesity. So um, in that sense, I guess overeating of anything is not going to be the best option. Gotcha. But But I didn't answer your question about funding because I think this is really critical. We've had some um, support for our research in the start. You know, certainly I've had NHMRC funding from some of the observational studies. Yep. And also for our recent clinical trial, which is great. But over the last few years, the uh, funding environment for medical research in Australia has become extremely tight. We've had a big reduction in the number of successful grant applications to the point now where I think most medical researchers in Australia are uh, feeling pretty despondent and feeling that the, the sector is moribund, you know. Hmm. So we're having to look to industry and to philanthropy to try and get funding for medical research. And this is one of the reasons I set up the Food and Mood Centre, because we are the only research unit in the world that is purely focused on the nutrition mental health link. And we're doing, we believe, such critically important research, but at this point we're completely underfunded. Yeah. Well, actually unfunded. Unfunded, right. So we have had no success for three years in getting funding, and that's simply because there are too many very good researchers trying to get a too small a pot of money. Right. So we're hoping that philanthropy and business will start to recognise the importance and the benefit to the community of doing the research in this area um, and that we might be able to get some funding that way because at the moment we, we don't have any funding at all. Right. So 
I mentioned earlier you're going to be doing um, giving your first conference for the International Society of Nutritional Psychiatry Research. That's in mm-hmm. Washington in USA. Is that is that right? That's correct. Yep. yep. At the end of July, beginning of August. So do you hope that, well, at least that will get some funding, but, but do you hope that funding, that you'll be noticed by government there? Um, I mean, heaven yes, forbid that is... it would be Australian, but, you know, at the very least yeah. overseas as well. <laughs> Well, we, we deliberately positioned the um, the conference in Bethesda, which is a suburb north of Washington where the NIH is situated, right. and that was deliberate yeah. so that NIH employees <laughs> yep. may come. Yep. We're having a public lecture uh, to that end also on the first day of the conference oh, with myself, yeah. Professor Susan Prescott and Dr. Alan Logan. Um, but very much the ISNPR was set up to promote, um, you know, good research in the area to to enhance and, and encourage collaboration and early career researchers because we really need people to be working together and also working to the same end, which is to advance the good quality scientific research in this field. I was invited by the NIEHS, which is the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Mm. about three weeks ago to go over there and participate in a workshop. And whilst there, I then was able to present on all of the data to the head of the National Institute of Mental Health in the US. So that was a very nice opportunity to put all the data on the table and to say, look, this is we, we consider a Western diet to be the most noxious of all of the environmental toxicants. Of course, they're very focused on things like BPA and yeah. pollutants in the food system. But I'm saying, well, based on the evidence and the burden of disease studies, a Western diet is the most noxious environmental toxicant of all. So I've got to ask, you know, when, you, when you're looking at you know, the good data, I'd say, well, much better than Australian. Um, when you're looking at NHANES, you know, you're one, two, three. Mm-hmm. Um, three, is that right? One, two, and three? Um, they may have more than that. And mm. I'm not certain that they are the best in that they are repeated cross-sectional studies, which means that they're not sort of following people up over time. But we have actually done a lot of analysis of Nahane's data, mm-hmm. um, which and it is a, a valuable resource in that sense. But the American diet is just so extreme these yeah. days. I mean, nearly 60% of Americans' energy intake comes from ultra-processed food products. Wow. They're not even food. They're, they're food products. And it's so normalized that when I pointed out to Americans, they are quite shocked. They don't actually see it because it is so completely normal for them to have only fast food restaurants available to them in many cases, unless they're living in the middle of a big city, um, for things in cans and packets to be the most ubiquitous of food products available mm. for purchase. You know, they, they it's so normalised that yeah. they actually, it's quite a shock to them to yeah. look at it through fresh eyes. I've got to say, um, my wife was speaking to me a few months ago now about a US family that came over. I think they came over for some, you know, um, you know, swapping sort of thing, billeting, you know. They were billeted out to an Australian family and they sat down for the evening meal and the kids were wide-eyed. They had not ever, not ever, eaten a fresh food mood, not ever, in their life. This oh is primary goodness. school children. Not ever, not once. Yeah. Not it's on any meal. Like, <laughs> just what? <laughs> like, I was staggered. Not we're, we're really considering that the wider American population is just very efficiently removing itself from the gene pool. Yeah. <laughs> because this generation will be the first generation to um, have a shorter life. A short lifespan, yeah. And the parents. Yeah. The level of chronic disease is just so incredibly high and the potential impact, and this hasn't been tracked yet, Mm. but the potential impact on the brain and brain function and um, certainly, you know, long-term health is so profound and the implications of what they're doing is so profound that you just think this is a whole nation committing slow suicide. Yeah. Movies like Idiocracy and WALL-E spring to mind when I'm (laughs) looking. But I've got to ask, how bad... Or how prevalent is a bad diet in Australia? It's not quite as bad as the US, <laughs> thank, thank goodness. So we get on average about 35% of our energy intake from processed food products. Right. So that's pretty terrible. It's still, yeah. But it's not nearly 60%. Although it's worse in younger people. So uh, adolescents get about 40% of their energy intake from these processed food products. And again, they're just normalised. You know, where we would have had them once a month at a kid's party 
in the 70s when I was growing up, uh, these kids are having them for, you know, before school, at lunchtime, after school. Um, and what we know is that only uh, less than 5% of the adult Australian population are eating the recommended intake of vegetables and legumes, which are probably the core food groups. Mm. Um, and for children, only half a percent are consuming this. Wow. Now, this is really staggering and just has huge implications, particularly given the new insights we have around the gut microbiome and how central it is to virtually every aspect of our health. Something like 70% of immune processes are a function of gut processes and the gut microbiome. Um, we now recognising that the gut microbiome plays a very important role in um, metabolism and body weight in the immune function and certainly we think in brain development in children. And the gut microbiota are highly dependent on fibre, dietary fibre, to do what they do. And we are not having anywhere even close to the minimal amount that's required. And researchers in the US who are particularly concerned about this have done animal studies that show that after four generations of a low-fibre diet, the gut microbiome um, diversity and health, it just cannot be rescued by reintroducing fibre. It wow. really, we think, has very, very serious implications because we should be having between 30 and 50 grams of fibre a day minimum, and we currently have 10 or less grams a day on average. So the fact that so few people are eating the vegetables and legumes, which is the primary source of fibre, is enormously concerning. We know from, you know, really good work from Jeff Leach, um, who went to live with the Hadza tribe. I'm a bit of a nut with mm. mentioning this too many off times in podcasts, but he said that, and, and there's other work um, around the globe showing that the microbiome can have, can be rescued, if you like, or be changed by vegetable intake very, very quickly. But after yeah. four generations, it's irreparable. It's done. Well, this is what the animal studies suggest. So, wow. you know, we can't necessarily say that the same is true in humans, yeah. but we can hazard a good guess that we, it yeah. may well be. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least to some impact. So I, mm. I'm just thinking about the long-term consequences with chronic disease, including things like colorectal cancer. Um, oh, yes. Wow. Very well-known study where they took um, African-Americans and rural Africans and they swapped their diets for two weeks. And the rural Africans, their, um, all their inflammatory markers in their bowel went up, their gut microbiota diversity and health went down, and the African-Americans uh, experienced a benefit and a reduction in their inflammatory markers. And that was only after two weeks. Wow, wow. So we know that these traditional diets that are much higher in plant foods and much higher in fibre, um, and also, of course, in traditional lifestyles, they tend to have more exposure to soil and animals and other sources of microbial diversity uh, yes. um, are associated with health, whereas a Western diet that's very low in fiber, low in exposure to microbes um, and high in uh, fat, mm. which we know it seems to be pretty toxic mm. to the gut microbiome and things such as emulsifiers and artificial sugars, which are also increasingly being shown to be noxious to the gut, um, these have a detrimental impact on the gut microbiome health and diversity. Now, Almedina Sanchez-Villegas, I, I hope mm -hmm. I've pronounced her name correctly. Elmu. <laughs> Elmu is gorgeous. She's one of our plenary speakers at our conference in I, July. Okay, now I pulled out um, a paper of hers, um, the Sun Cohort Study, and this was in mm -hmm. 2012, I think I looked at it, um, and it was looking at, there was two aspects, cardiovascular risk and the incidence of depression, um, mm -hmm. but there was also uh, the um, uh, proportional intake of saturated fats and especially trans fatty acids with mm -hmm. things like both depression and aggression. Mm. So... You're talking about fat changing the microbiome, biota, whatever we want to call it. You know, mm -hmm. biome rolls off the tongue more easily. <laughs> mm. But we're talking about the bugs, the microbiota. Mm -hmm. um, when you're thinking, you added, you spoke about um, sweeteners. I would put in there mm -hmm. sugar as well, processed foods. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the microbiota potentially having an effect on mood in a roundabout or a direct way? What's your opinion? Both. 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 So there's a very strong bi-directional relationship between the gut and the brain via the vagus nerve. It's called the gut-brain axis. Yep. 
90% of the communication comes from the gut to the brain and 10% from the brain down to the gut. So there's a very direct mode of communication between the central nervous system and the gut. But we also uh, know that the gut microbiome is central in immune function and in promoting um, you know, these in, in, in immune molecules, these cytokines and related immune molecules. Mm-hmm. And we see from animal and human data that these pro-inflammatory cytokines can prompt the risk for depression. And we also know that neuroinflammation has a role in mental health and brain health. So we think that the the, path, the pathways by which the gut microbiome may influence mental health, there are many, both direct and indirect. Yep. But we're really only just starting to tease them apart because it's only the last few years that we've had the gene sequencing techniques that allow us to start to understand what bugs are in the gut and what they might be doing. And we're still in very early days. So the evidence that the gut microbiome is very important to brain and particularly brain development comes from these paradigms called germ-free mice. And these germ-free mice, the poor little things, are bred pretty much in a vacuum so that they don't have commensal bacteria. And commensal, we use that term to differentiate from the pathogenic bacteria that make us sick. Commensal bacteria, those, you know, we've co-evolved with them over millennia. They can't live without us. We Mm. can't live without them. Now, these mice are bred without commensal bacteria. And you see that these mice are really profoundly, um, you know, um, impaired they have a very overactive stress response. They have changes in brain plasticity and a whole range of things that relate to brain health where they're profoundly impaired. And for this reason, we think that the gut microbiome in the newborn plays a very important role in brain development over time. And of course, this has big implications because babies get their gut microbiome from their mum. If mum doesn't have a healthy microbiome, you know, we think that that means that the children are going to have a less healthy microbiome. So these are the sorts of things that at this point we believe may be true, but of course need much more research to really establish whether the same sorts of things are true in humans as what we see in the animal studies. We're running um, a randomized controlled trial at the Royal Children's Hospital targeting pregnant women and helping them to um, adopt a a gut-friendly diet during Mm. their pregnancy. And then we want to see whether this has an influence on their gut microbiome and also that of their babies a month after birth. So that's Ah. one study we're doing at the moment. And again, we're doing it on the smell of an oily rag with wonderful PhD students because we have no funding. So um, we're really trying to come at this from a number of different angles. And certainly we're running a lot of microbiota studies here at the Food and Mood Centre but in many of them, we're just collecting the data and putting it in the freezer because we don't have the money to analyse it. Oh so, um, you know, it's, it's a slow process, but yeah. one that we really important. There's so many important things. I've got to say, you know, commercial interest has poked its head into the microbiota thing, but I think it's um, vastly oversimplified to talk about one, two, five bacteria, usually historically related to dairy products, um, to overcome an issue that that pervades these plethora, these legions of organisms. Mm. Um, oh, absolutely. And the other component of it that is very important, while diet might be the leading, the most important variable that seems to influence the gut microbiome mm. and people's in individual finger or footprint, if you yeah. like, yeah. Um, we need to think about the microbiome in the soil, the air, and the water. Yeah. And of course, in a Western context, these things are, are affected as well. So we exist as part of a complex ecosystem, and we don't exist independent of that. So that's another aspect. And what I, um, you know, Obama, Barack Obama, really understood this and and put um, promised quite a bit of funding in, you know, before he left power to. Uh, examine this at holistically, not just the microbiome of the human, but how it interacts with the microbiome of the planet. This is um, unfortunately, uh, um, he reached his second term, which they, a US president can't set a third term. Yes. <laughs> we won't get into that political hot potato. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, we've spoken about general things that might, you know, help with dietary influences, fruit and vegetables. Um, lower processed foods, things like that. 
What about, though, teasing out some things that might not work, for instance, um, in at least in certain instances? And I'm, I, I guess I'm pointing here to the really good work of Maria Macredis um, in Flinders, um, mm-hmm. looking at um, omega-3, particularly DHA, um, mm-hmm. supplementation during pregnancy, not having an effect on working memory and inhibitory control in infants. Well, I think, you know, the key thing really is that supplements are not food and and the two things are are just not comparable. They're really completely different animals. So if you're talking about supplementing just one particular nutrient in the context of a whole diet that's insufficient, that, of course, is going to have very limited effects. There are also real issues with omega-3 fatty acid research because of the potential for the polyunsaturated fats to be oxidized and, you know, the way that they're transported and handled and manufactured is very important and I'm not sure that that's always been considered as closely as it could. But I'm also mindful of the fact that it's the baseline factors. When we think about supplements, the evidence for supplements in certainly in psychiatry is very patchy. It's inconsistent. The data um, and the, the, the trials that exist, um, a great many of them and maybe not as rigorous as they could have been, and the evidence is highly conflicting. But I think one of the reasons for that is that we're not considering the baseline factors that might affect how someone responds to a particular supplement. And here again, we've got to consider the microbiome mm-hmm. because the microbiome play a very important role in nutrient metabolism, and but they also actually, I mean, gut microbiota synthesize vitamins. Um, so if we um, consider how much into individual variation there is in people's microbiome and how they synthesize vitamins and minerals and nutrients. And if we don't take that into account when we're looking at how someone responds to a supplement and we give everybody the same amount of supplement to the same dosing regime, uh, I think that we're not going to get terribly far in trying to work out what supplements are useful for whom under what conditions. And as one very nice example, a principal um, study uh, coming out of Harvard with colleagues of mine from the ISNPR, they showed, as is often showed, that omega-3 fatty acids, particularly those higher in EPA as a ratio to DHA, were helpful for those with depression, but only if they had inflammation, inflammation yeah. to start with. <laughs> and that really makes sense because only half of people with major depression, for example, will have an in- increased inflammation. Mm. The inflammation creates the oxidative stress environment that perox um, it acts on the lipid membrane of the cell and you get this lipid peroxidation yep. and this is where we think the omega-3 fatty acids can be really useful to to restore that lipid membrane health but if that is not um, if that condition doesn't exist to start with there's nothing for the omega-3 fatty mm. acids to do in, yep. a, in a sense that's in a very simplistic way Absolutely. so I guess what I'm saying is that we need much more information about the baseline factors that influence how people respond to any sort of um, supplemental intervention. And this is true for drugs as well because the way that drugs are metabolised varies enormously between individuals. And again, it's probably very much a function of the microbiome. So every single trial that is done now, I think, needs to consider the microbiome. Mm. Uh, And, of course, baseline diet. So that's where I'm going. Is there any research on looking at subcategories, say one group had a base healthy diet plus or minus, plus supplements, there you could go, there's there's another arm, plus or minus supplements. And then there was another group that had an unhealthy diet plus or minus supplements. So there's four arms (laughs) plus, Mm. plus maybe a control where you're not giving any supplements, just having the diet, you'd have two controls. So is there any data on, on, do supplements only work if you add them to a healthy diet? I don't think we have those data yet. I'm aware of a couple of important studies that are underway that might help to tease apart this sort of question a little bit. Hmm. I think of more utility is to really start to get a handle on how we vary as individuals and, yep. and again, on the basis of our microbiome and our, um, inf- our immune function, etc. So my very, I guess, To my mind, at this point in my research career, the most important study that I want funded 
and it's um, submitted to the NHMRC at this point, is a study that the, the large population-based cohort study, the Geelong Osteoporosis Study, the data from which I use for my PhD yep. um, and which I've published many papers from, that's a highly representative sample of men and women that um, continue to come in to the study centre every few years and undergo rigorous testing, psychiatric testing, physical, um, you know, we do DEXA scans. We do a whole range of very detailed investigations on them. We are starting to collect microbiome samples from them as well. Oh. Now, this will be a slow process but um, and a very expensive process if we want to do it properly. But this is what the funding application is for at this point, is to do metagenomic analyses on the microbiome of this very large population-based sample of individuals with very good historic data on their psychiatric health and their medical health. Now, the reason for doing this is largely on the basis of an extremely important study that was published last year by Erin Segal's group in Israel. Now, what they showed, and this is really, really uh, fascinating research and really comprehensive, um, they basically followed 800 or so people over a week or so and got regular um, blood glucose measurements and tracked their diets and all sorts of things. And basically what they established is that people, and they were looking here at their postprandial glucose response, so how people respond to food after they've eaten it. And this is a marker of mm. metabolic health. Mm. And what they showed is that people, this is very simply speaking, people respond extremely differently to the same foods. Oh. So nobody, people don't respond to the, to the same foods in the same way. There's enormous variation in how we metabolically respond to food. Even if you gave everyone exactly the same foods, they would respond differently. And that's basically what they found. What they then did was that they took all the medical data they had on these people and then added the microbiome data that they had on these people mm. and they applied these very sophisticated statistical modelling techniques, we call them you know, very hard sums, to <laughs> these data. And from that, VHS. They, were able to, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they were able to actually develop algorithms that would allow them to predict an individual's response to a standard meal based on this algorithm. And then they went and tested it in an intervention trial where they said, well, on the basis of this algorithm, we think that this meal would yeah. result in the lowest postprandial glucose response. And for you, it would be this meal. And for you, it would be this meal. And showed that Correct. that was the case. Wow. So what this tells us is that, A, people are not going to respond the same way to the same diet, and we need to recognize this, mm -hmm. that, B, Having data on their microbiome allows us to understand in far more detail what might be an optimal diet for them. And this is when we wow. start to move towards personalized medicine. Okay. We also think it might allow us to predict the probability of depression. So we think that there might be huge potential Gosh. for collecting these sorts of data. Okay. And that's what we want to fund. But so, it's one point seven million dollars. So yeah, well, <laughs> well, add in these questions. <laughs> so, so my head's spinning with this. So, first, first cab off the rank. First question. Um, you know, they tried. I think it was two thousand and twelve or something, two thousand ten, where they thought, "Yep, no worries, we've got it." There's basically f three major footprints for the, you know. Um, spread, if you like, of the microbiota in the human mm. gut. And then mm. just after that, I think it was six months, one year, they went, and eh, no, nah, not a chance. No. <laughs> um, so when you're looking at microbiota, I guess mm -hmm. the first question is, a lot of natural medicine practitioners say, what species, what genus do I get, you know, what genus and species, mm. but you're really going down to the family level, correct? Well, I wouldn't even be that focused at this point. I don't think we even really know... Um, much more than, okay, this bug seems to be associated with this medical condition sometimes. You know, for a while there, people were thinking that the firmicutes to bacteroidetes ratio was going to be really important yeah. in body weight. But for future studies with bigger sample sizes have said, well, no, that's probably not so much. Right. Um, you know, there's some... Um, 
excitement around a particular bug called acamantia, which yep, seems to be associated yep. with, yeah, with lean body weight. We're yep. actually doing a study on that at the moment. I've just got an honours student who's interrogating some of our early data from the GOSS microbiome project to, okay. to have a look just at whether acamantia differs between, you know, people of normal weight and those who are overweight and obese. Yep. So we're yep. just doing it as it's an honours project. It's not a big study. But... Um, you know, the more information we have, the more we realise that it's just incredibly complex, like mind-blowingly complex. And that particular bacteria can be goodies or baddies, depending on environmental factors, mm. depending on the presence or absence of other species. Yep. They do all sorts of different things, and they can be potentially good or bad in you know a variety of ways, and that are very complex and. So to start, the only thing I think we can say just at this point, and we. Again, we could be wrong, but it does seem to be the case that microbiota diversity is a marker of better gut health. Yeah. The more diverse your microbiota, that tends to be a marker of gut health. And that's, I think, because the more diversity you have, it's a war down there, uh, the less likely it is that one particular species will predominate, if you like. That's right. And this is my concern with giving too much of quote unquote a good thing is what are you upsetting? Mm. Do you know? There, there is research showing that, you know, for instance, one super strain of lactobacillus acidophilus kills other commensals in replacement of itself. Mm. I'm mm. not sure that's a good thing um, long-term. Short-term. I, I, I don't take probiotics. Mm. Uh, what I do do, though, is I make my own kombucha and kefir. Yes. And I think think back to our traditional diets, and again, I think it just gets back to basics. You know, what do we traditionally have? You know, in medieval times when the water was just too toxic to drink and people just drank beer the whole time and wine and probably half drunk most of the time. And let's face it, if you're a medieval person, that was probably the best way to exist. (laughs) But um, the way that they used to ferment the alcohol was very, very healthy. They didn't pasteurise it, you know. So these um, ancient fermenting processes resulted in um, extremely, we think, healthful products, you know. Um, And there's a group down in Tasmania called Two Metre Tall, who are doing these traditional fermentation beers and things, and they're fantastic. But traditional diets around the world have always included fermented foods, and that's because they didn't have any way of storing them in a fridge. Um, So different countries have different versions. You know, in Japan, you've got tempeh and natto, and in Europe, you've got sauerkraut, pickled veggies, and, you know, all over the world, there's different versions of fermented foods. But in each case, they're a very, very good source of microbial diversity. And I think it's probably a better bet to be ingesting that sort of thing rather than taking, um, you know, the pills. Yes. Can I can I ask a question on that pickling thing? Mm-hmm. So with regards to nitrates, mm. benefit versus risk, when you're looking oh, at, look. you know, like Japanese men, for instance, have a higher rate of stomach cancer, notwithstanding that they yeah, smoke yeah. more. Yeah, so there's yeah, a risk yeah. factor. And they also have very low fibre diets, unfortunately. Yeah. But yes, the Go nitrates can... are definitely a problem. I'm not quite sure how pickling works very well because I don't like pickled things, so I tend not to eat them. But my understanding is that if you are doing a traditional fermenting procedure, which basically just involves, I think, vinegar and sugar, is that right? Oh, um, not yeah, an I mean, this is, this is not involving nitrates, it's just um, vinegar, which is a kind of a shortcut to a short-chain fatty acid, which is what the bacteria produce um, that seems to be healthful, Uh, and the sugar for the bacteria to eat, and veggies, and you stick it in a jar and you allow it to ferment, I think that's probably a very healthful product. Whether if you picked up a a glass jar of sauerkraut from the supermarket that's been pasteurised yes, and had right. things added to it, not so sure about Preservatives, that. Preservatives, yeah. I, I will mm. defer to um, Dr. Matt Ball of Wild Kombucha and Dr. Sarah Lance of Bucci Kombucha for the, the fermentation processes I think that, that are best be employed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned Acomantia. It's it's one of my. I was just reading on about it the other day, by the way, about acamantia, and there was another. It's it's a really interesting bug. It lives in the the mucous membrane, yeah. the lining of the gut. Um, and thus far, up until very recently, it's been very resistant to culturing it or producing it in a way where people could actually take it. Because yeah. if you if you Google acamantia, it's always you know where can I buy acamantia? No. Yeah. How can I eat Can't. acamantia? 
But there's a group in Europe, um, Patrice Kenny's group, who are oh. very focused on overweight and obesity and the gut microbiome. They're yeah. doing amazing work. And they have recently developed a way of very, very slowly pasteurizing it, I think, because what we understand too is even dead bugs yes. can have bioactive properties. Yeah. Um, and in a way that may allow us to take it as a supplement, whether or not that results in any benefits to weight, we don't know. Right. But um, certainly there are some advances that have been made in producing it in a way that may allow us to ingest it. Yeah. Whether this is a good thing or not, we don't know. Yeah. Um, so with regards to the probiotics, and, and I get that, you know, there's a lot of conflicting evidence. There's a lot um, a lot more work to be done. I, I was reading two studies. One used um, what was at least previously called VSL-3, which is a multi-species um, slash strain, um, very high dose, 450 billion um, um, product, if you like, used normally for bowel inflammation. But there was something about that with cognitive reactivity. To, but the problem is it was sad mood. It wasn't really depression or anxiety. So I'm no. quizzical about these measures. Yeah, yeah. There's a lack of um, data from randomised control trials thus far. There was one study that was a negative study, but I think it had some methodological issues. This mm. is a study from New Zealand. There were some issues regarding the people who went into the trial. One of the big issues with depression trials is you get a lot of people who are highly treatment resistant, and that means that they don't respond to anything. Right. And that can, can kind of contaminate trials, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Um, there was a study in Iran that showed highly positive, very exciting results, but it was only yeah, in 40 people. Yeah. And you, you, you really need to sort of say, well, mm, I think we need to replicate that. Um, so we've got a funding application in for a randomised control trial of a probiotic in depression. We've got that in collaboration with the really the leaders in gut-brain access research in the world, which is the group at Cork in Ireland. So oh, John Cryan. Shanahan. Fergus Shanahan. Oh, wonderful bunch. <laughs> They're just so great. And John is actually presenting a plenary at our ISNPR conference. And yeah. of course, he's really the leading figure in gut microbiota, gut brain access research internationally. Yeah. And a thoroughly wonderful bloke. I mean, yeah. they're all great over there. It's a great place to visit. Um, so we do have a randomized control trial because the thing is, just because I have my doubts about whether something may or may not be useful doesn't mean that I'm right. You yeah. know, the only way you can know is if you do test it in a rigorous, really well-designed randomized control trial. And that's what we don't have at this point. So we need funding to do that. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Good stuff. Now, I've got to say also, you're going to be a busy lady speaking at not just the ACNEM conference on the weekend of May the 13th, 14th, but also a public talk that's sort of secondary, isn't it, to the ACNEM conference, Med Ed for Everybody? Oh, crikey. I'm not even sure. I'm doing so many talks that uh, I've lost track. I know I that can I'm promise you your photo's up there. <laughs> you better send me a link so I can check it out. <laughs> I'm always worried that I've missed something because I don't have any funding for a PA. And I really need one because I have a crazy diary. Um, so I'm doing a lot of talks in, you know, this year, as I always do. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, for our uh, for our listeners, it's going to be on All in the Mind, the ABC, um, next week. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Malcolm, and I did a public lecture in Brisbane a couple of weeks ago that was on Radio National Big Ideas podcast last week. So, great. you know, I do a lot of talking because this is obviously something that's of great interest to the general public. Yes. Everybody eats. Everybody has mental health of one sort or another. Half of all people in Australia will experience a mental disorder at some point in their life. The fact that what they stick in their mouth is, has relevance to their mental health and also their brain power, this is obviously something that people are very interested in yes. for very good reason. So and I do do lots of talking. So two quick questions before we let you get on with your day. Mm -hmm. Firstly, um, what do you see natural health practitioners doing that are wrong, constantly wrong, that we need to be doing correctly when instigating a healthy diet? And the second part of that is, how well do you find, particularly mental patients with a mental health issue, how well do you find them sticking to a healthy diet, to dietary modification long-term? Mm, two really good questions. Geez, the first one is highly contentious, of course, but I think that there's a, an unhealthy obsession in the natural health community with gluten and dairy. And I think it's just very simplistic because 
we're very interested in the A1, A2 aspects of dairy, and yeah. that's something that we're about to do a trial into because we don't think that you can, um, uh, you know, tar all dairy with the same brush. No, that's right. Again, we think that the way people respond to dairy will vary enormously on the basis of their genes and of their microbiome. So, um, and similarly with gluten and the whole wheat protein thing, I mean, there is, I think, if you look at all the literature and nutrition from as way back, the standout um, food component that is consistently associated with good health outcomes more than anything else is whole grains. Yeah. So when we have this obsession with, you know, removing gluten and, and wheat from the diet, we are also, we think, throwing babies out with bath waters because some people do indeed respond to gluten and it may be that they've just had too much of one particular sorts of grains. But there are many, many grains that do have gluten in them that we know are associated with very good health That's right. benefits, such as rye and that sort of thing. Um also, the focus on supplements and individual nutrients, I think, can be problematic because we just don't have enough information yet to know what is useful for people. And giving people antioxidants as a supplement, there's pretty good evidence that that's not a good idea because yeah. it interferes with the body's regulatory systems that are very finely calibrated and you just chuck in an antioxidant which acts you know, on these cellular processes, it can be really problematic. So I think that, um, you know we need to think very carefully about the recommendations that are made to people. And I think the safest recommendation is, as Michael Pollan says, eat whole food, not too much, mostly plants. That's right. And then chuck in some fermented foods there as well. <laughs> Professor Felice Jacker, thank you so much for taking through your obvious passion. And I really, you know, like these are key components that are affecting the Australian and indeed the international community. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. And I wish you not just well in your upcoming um, talks, but I wish you well in your international conference in Washington in uh, July. Well done. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. It's a pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. ACNEM is a non-profit medical college offering postgraduate training and education for doctors and other graduate healthcare professionals.